Our text this evening, if you have your Bibles, will be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of, the partnership, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will not carry it on to Will, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. Are you familiar with the phrase, and oftentimes you may see this phrase on, on social media or from a person on the news who will often say in the midst of a mass crisis, um, the, the phrase thoughts and prayers to the people, right? I want to give my thoughts and my prayers and while I think the phrase is, is, is a well-meaning phrase, uh, sometimes I think it, it actually is sort of an empty one because I don't know how many people actually pray, right? Oftentimes that phrase is used because they want to show their support to whatever's happening. They, they, they want to do something about it, but they really can't from their position. And so to say that is to say, well, I care, but I can't really do much. But the truth is, I think prayer is very significant. And I think Paul thinks so too. Um, last week, we left off in verse 2. We're chugging right along. Here we are in verse 3. Okay, we're making really good progress. Um, Paul goes on. He says, I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you. Okay, so every time Paul remembers this church, he prays for them. I always pray with what? Joy. Because of your partnerships in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it into completion until the day of King Jesus. Now, do you have a friend in your life who, when they say to you, hey, I'm going to pray for you, like, when they say those words, you're like, oh, yeah, they actually mean, like, they will actually pray for me. I know about three or four people in my life who, when they tell me that, I'm like, I can, I can even, sometimes I, I don't know if it's real or not, but I can, like, sense that they're praying for me. It's like, I feel great. I, I can sense that God's working in my own heart. And oftentimes, I get confirmation later that they were indeed praying for me throughout the week. Uh, my personality is not always great at that. And so whenever I say I'm going to pray for someone, I will literally do it there on the spot in my head. I'll say a quick prayer because I know I'll probably forget later. So if I ever send a text, hey, I'll pray for you, I will put my phone down and pray because I'm not always the best about this. But Paul means it. And I think this is a really important idea that we can, we can take today. Paul really means it. Right after his greeting, grace and peace to you, he comes in and he, sa he says, the first thing he says is that every single time I think of you, I thank God for you. I thank God for you in my prayers. And I think that's saying something. And then he says that, that intense line, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Paul's driving home this point that in all of his prayers for all of you, I will always pray with joy. And I think Paul is being dead serious here. He's not just saying this uh, for good measure. He's not just trying to be kind. Like, I genuinely believe Paul when he says these things. And there's, there's a few reasons for this. Now, the first question I have when I'm reading this text, and whenever I prepare for a sermon, I, I read it over three or four times, and I'm like, what, what questions do I have about this? And the first question that comes into my mind is like, how is Paul praying for joy, right? How can Paul say that, right? Because he's, he's in prison. And this isn't like a, an American prison that we might think of where you would have a nice, a semi-nice bed. You'd probably have a pillow. 
You might have a cafeteria and a place to work out and maybe even TV somewhere. This is a first century Roman prison. No food likely that was edible. Um, it, was, it was not water whenever you needed it. Uh, there, were, there were no clothes. You're in chains in a dungeon, essentially left to rot and die. This is not a pleasant way to live out your years. Uh, my wife has a nickname for me. She calls me on occasion a diva princess because I am very particular about my sleeping arrangements, right? I have a very special pillow I like. I like the blankets a certain way. I'm very picky, and if it's not right, I often complain, and then she calls me diva princess. Now, the point is, I would not do well in a Roman prison. I don't know about you, but I would not, the first thing that would not become exuding from my, my brain is, is joy, okay? That's not what I, I think I would be experiencing. It's the last word that would be on my lips. But here's a man who is left to rot and die. And he says, every time I think of you, I think, I pray with joy. How can Paul say that? Well, if you keep on reading, Paul goes on to say in verse 5, uh, he says, here's why. Because your partnership in the gospel from the first day, okay? Now, if you remember 10 years back, um, um, this, you're going to get a little bit more of, of Paul's backstory, which we'll touch on in a bit. Um, but he says, now being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of King Jesus. Now, there's so much going on here under the surface that we, we kind of need to go back and do a little bit uh, of history to understand it. So if you give me five minutes, we'll kind of unpack this backstory. So Paul, we've mentioned this briefly, but Paul was a Jewish rabbi. That means his upbringing, uh, his culture, his background, his language, his worldview was Jewish to the core. He was born in a city called Tarsus. If you know anything about Tarsus, um, uh, it was right on the southern coast of modern-day uh, Turkey. It was one, had one of the top universities in all the empire, which meant Paul grew up around philosophers and really intelligent thinkers, professors, scientists, and it was, it was a place where he probably was around a lot of really smart people. At a young age, Paul uh, shows a very high aptitude for learning, Okay, so this guy, Paul, he goes by Saul at, at that point, is really sharp. He gets the opportunity of a lifetime to go to Jerusalem uh, in Israel and study under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Okay? Now, if you're not familiar with this rabbi, um, this was the most well-known rabbi in Israel at the time when Paul was growing up. He was the grandson, and you maybe have heard of this rabbi, one of the most famous Jewish rabbis of all time was Hillel. Okay, Hillel was the, uh, the rabbi, you may recognize him, um, who there was a story about the Gentile who said, I'm not going to convert to Judaism unless, or I'm not going to convert to your faith unless you can recite the entire Torah while standing on one foot. And then Hillel responded on one foot. He said, what is hateful of you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is an explanation of this. Now go and study it kind of similar to a phrase we may have heard from Jesus, funny enough. You know, I was thinking maybe I'd preach shorter sermons if I did them on one foot. I know I went 40 minutes last week. Promise, we're not going 40 tonight. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting, so, so you have this, this uh, rabbi, Hillel, okay, his grandson, who's the one which Paul's studying under, and so he's, he has this chance to move from Tarsus Jerusalem, he's studying under the most elite teacher of the law, 
And he becomes essentially a Pharisee. We see this term all throughout the scriptures. This was the type of rabbihood that he was growing up in to become this type of Pharisee. Now, Paul was steeped in what you and I know today as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. It's in his bloodstream. In fact, in that time, you would memorize Genesis to Malachi. You would know, you would have it memorized in a way that you could recite the entire thing by memory, which is insane to me. Like, memorizing verses um, is, is hard for me. I can't imagine memorizing the entirety of Scripture. It's very, very impressive. So imagine knowing this inside and out, completely a part of your being. When Paul writes, okay, so anytime we read his epistles, anytime we read um, when he's trying to, to write letters to people, we have to understand that it's not just flat writing. I think Western authors, we often write kind of flat in, in that sense. We don't always, it's not so layered. But when we read Paul, we have to understand that there are winks and nods and allusions and references, and he is speaking to an audience that would catch many of these references that he is making to the Old Testament. It's about what's underneath. It is about what's said on the surface, yes, but it's also about what's underneath what Paul is saying. And so on the surface level, we read Paul's words here. We're like, God's not done. Like, he started a work. He is going to finish it. That is all true. But what else is under the surface? If you were a first century Jew, there would have been three words in the Greek that would have really popped off the page as you were reading this letter. Those three words are the words began, good, and completion, okay? And the reason these three words would have popped off the page is because all of these three words, if you go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, do you remember how the book begins? The story of Scripture begins with, in the beginning, there's that Greek word began, okay? In the beginning, God created, there's the word create, and what was creation? It was good. It was so good, in fact, that you see this over and over again in the book of Genesis. In, in verse 10, um, it says it was good. Um, verse 12, right? God saw that it was good. We see it in 25. God saw that it was good. 31, over and over again, we see this used and repeated in the book of Genesis. So God sees his creation in the beginning, sees his creation, and sees that it is good. Now, let's go back to Philippians plug that word, those words, into Paul, and we read it a little differently. <clears throat> he has made the work, or sorry, excuse me, um, he has began the work in you and will carry it out to completion. There is a sort of allusion and a reference to the very beginning of Scripture that God who created the cosmos, who created all things, is actually doing a work in you, and he's not done with it yet. Paul saying the exact same creator, the God who created the universe, is at work in you. The creative, explosive, life-giving energy that gave birth to the cosmos pulsates and burns in your veins. Okay, I wrote that. That's kind of good, right? Um, this is what Paul is saying. Now, I want to show you a couple of pictures. I've got one here. If you chose for me, Joseph. You know, for those of you who have listened to me preach, you know I get obsessed with space. And I just like looking at pictures of space all the time. Um, so I've got some of these for you. Uh, do we know what this is? Anybody? Yes, correct, space. This is the stellar sword. It was taken by the Hubble telescope. Okay, the stellar sword, let me tell you what it is. 
It's a flaming blue sword. It looks like one, kind of. Um, it seems to be piercing the cosmic heart. Uh, it's composed of uh, twin jets of a superheated ionized gas that are rocketing into space from opposite poles of a newborn star. No idea what that means, but it's cool, right? It's pretty awesome. Um, why don't you go to the next one? This is one of my favorites. These are the pillars of creation. Fitting, right? Um, in 2020, actually, the Hubble telescope revisited. Uh, this is one of the most iconic images taken by this. It actually originally was taken in 1995. Um, you have this elephant trunk-shaped features um, that are forming these incredible, like, monolithic-like structures, right? So it appears that there's some kind of structure in the sky, but really it's just interstellar dust and gas and it's the dramatic interaction between jets and cloud and uncommon celestial sight. I don't know what that means, but it's cool. Okay, I got one more for you. This right here, you know what this is? Space spider, close. Yes, the Southern Crab Nebula, very good. This guy knows. Um, the Hubble team released this. It's an hourglass-shaped Southern Crab Nebula for the space 29th anniversary in 2019. This is found in the constellation Taurus, if you're familiar with that. Um, it's a beautiful, you can kind of see the symmetry of it. Um, it's, one star has already exploded and turned into a white dwarf, and in the midst of that, it creates this beautiful, beautiful thing that really we can try to understand it, but it is so incredible and beyond. It just sort of creates in us an awe, okay? Listen, there are billions and billions of galaxies. That's mind-blowing in and of itself, when you think about how big a galaxy is, there's so much unknown in the universe that we have never seen. So many awe-inducing, incredible, beautiful things. And that's not to mention the beauty of our very own planet. The awe that's induced in us when we go to the Grand Canyon or when you look at an ocean or when you experience the beauty of night and morning and sunset and sunrise, it does something in us. It brings out a certain type of worship and awe. And what's so incredible, and what I think Paul is pointing to here, is that the same God who created the Southern Crab Nebula, right? The same God who created these incredible space uh, uh, things that we can never even fully grasp in our human mind, that same God is at work in you. And not only has he started a work, but he's not finished yet. That work is continuing let that sink into your gut a little bit. Like, really understand that. The bigness of God, yet God is near. The God who made you and me is working in the church, in the city, in human history. The same exact creator God who created the cosmos in motion is not far away, but he began a good work in you. He's alive, and he's at work, and he will carry it into completion. My son, Henry, asked me the other day if aliens were real. And I said, I've never seen one. But God is so creative, beyond our wildest imagination, who knows? And my wife's like, don't do that, you're going to scare them. And I was like, aliens, though, I want to believe. Um, now, I don't know if aliens are real, probably not. But, I, you know, God is a creative God, so you never know. My point is this. Paul sees the creative evidence, okay, and, and the creative activity of God, not just, um, not just in the present, but he sees it both in the past, okay? Remember when he referenced Philippians for the, the 10 years that I've known you? Okay, but also the future. 
to the day of completion. So let's first look at the past. Paul talks about this, and I quote, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, so he says, think about the last 10, 12 years, Philippians. If you think about the last 10, 12 years, think about all the ways in which God's fingerprints are all over your church. The ways in which God worked, the ways in which God brought you to this very place today. He says, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel, because that's incredible. The word partnership in the Greek is this word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard that term before. Um, It's translated in older Bibles as fellowship, but I actually think the the NIV does a better job understanding the the semantic range of the word. Because the word uh, for koinonia as partnership is actually captures this idea that there's a sense of sharing money in a partnership, okay? Um, In koinonia, this is actually a semi-legal term for business partnership. When you would start a business with someone, you'd both put a bunch of money in a pot, and it was no longer seen as your money and my money, and we're going to separate. No, it was seen as you were partnering to the point to where everything fell on both of you. You were together in this. There was something you invested in this relationship that mattered. And if you know anything about Paul, um, Paul wouldn't take a dime from any of the churches he planted, right? He, he uh, wouldn't take a dime from the Corinthians. He wouldn't take a dime from uh, the, the, the Thessalonians. Um, he had a very, a very specific uh, words for these churches because he didn't, he didn't want to be seen as someone who was being paid for the gospel. He's like, no, this is free of charge. This is, this is what I'm all about. This is what my life is for. I make a living as a tent maker. That's good enough for me. However, Philippians was different. And this is part of what makes this letter so unique and why when you read it, you can see Paul's affection for this church. It's why he speaks with so much joy and positivity because they have a certain level of relationship that even at the end of the letter, Paul says, um, the church sent him money. Philippians sent him money in Thessalonica. They sent him money in Rome, and Paul was okay with that, specifically for this church, because of their healthy friendship. And so Paul says, thank you. You saved my life. Like, that mattered when that happened. I mean, if you know the story, um, you can read about it in Acts. Paul's arrested in Jerusalem, and over the course of four years, Paul moves from prison to prison to prison to Jerusalem, all the way to Rome. And by the time Paul gets to a prison in Rome... In one of his letters, he says, everybody deserted me. I had no more money. I was about to starve to death. And then one day, a dude named Aphroditus shows up and says, hey, Paul, you remember me? I'm from Philippi. My feet hurt. I've walked a long way, but I'm here for you, and I have money for you. Let's get you some food, some water, some clothes, and let's bring you back to life. Okay, so you get the backstory. So Paul was brought back to life, in a sense, because of the graciousness of the church in Philippi. They they came to his rescue in a way, and so there is this relationship that is forged, this koinonia that is formed. And because of that, Paul says, the gospel is alive and well. And he says, I thank you. Paul also sees this as an evidence um, that not just that the Philippians are nice, but also that the evidence that a creator God is at work in and through the Philippians. Like that line, um, it says, he began a good work in you. It also can be translated, he who began a good work through you, okay? 
So when God does a good work um, in you, it's because God actually wants to do a good work through you. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, we are the conduits of the gospel, right? Paul says grace and peace, um, not from me, but from God himself. He is a messenger in the same way God is wanting to use us for that same purpose. And so Paul looks back on the last 10, 11, 12 years with his relationship with the Philippians and says, yeah, all that, that was God. Take a second, take a break here. Think about your life in the last decade. I know a lot's happened to me in the last decade. I, I got married, had three kids and one on the way. Um, I've experienced my entire vocational career here at Eastminster over the last 10, 11 years. Went to two different seminary programs. I've, I've experienced um, a lot, like so much. And I'll tell you what, there were moments along the way when I looked at my life and I was confused. I didn't know what God was doing. There was heartache. There was difficulty. There were challenges. But when I look back and I really reflect on it, man, something about looking back on your life, you can see where the fingerprints of God is all over it. Times that in the moment seem so confusing and difficult and weird, and then in hindsight, five years later, I say, oh, I see, I see where God was working even in the midst of heartache. I see where God was working even in the midst of a, a terrible miscarriage that my wife and I went through. I see where God was working even in, in a time when we, we, our, our roof was leaking with water. We didn't know how we were going to pay our mortgage. We were, we were struggling in all kinds of things. Now, I saw where God was working even in times of difficulty and suffering. And Paul is saying, you see all that God has done? Right? That's not just you. That is God's work. The same God who created, who began the world and created all things is at work in your life in the past. And you sometimes miss it if you don't pay attention. Now, Paul sees the past as evidence um, that God is at work in our lives in the past, but also sees it as uh, something he's doing in the future, okay? Paul talks at the end, he says, you began a good work and he will carry it on to completion until the day of King Jesus. We'll spend a lot, of, we spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation, so I'm not going to belabor this point, but essentially he's saying the day of Christ Jesus, what he's referring to there, because he uses this phrase many times in this letter and in other letters, He's referring to the day of Christ Jesus, the climactic point on the horizon when the creator God breaks back into human history, vanquishes evil and justice and poverty and disease and death and war and wipes the slate clean, ushers in a new kingdom, a new rule, reign, and a, a restoration of all things on earth. The new heavens, the new earth, the second coming of Christ is coming. If you come on Sunday... I'm preaching Revelation 17, and we'll talk more about that. So come on Sunday. But Paul is saying, look, there is a future, okay? Big picture, not just in your life, but big picture. There is a future where this is happening. This is really subversive and kind of crazy for Paul to say this, to make these claims in a time when Christians are being persecuted, and he's thrown into prison for that very reason. Okay, so he's saying things that are certainly provocative among a normal person in Philippi, right? And what does Paul also do? He swaps um, out Lord for Christ Jesus and Messiah or King Jesus because to Paul, Yahweh is not just, or Jesus is not just a, a, a prophet or, or a rabbi, but Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. 
This is a very, very big statement for Paul. It's not random. It's not haphazard. Not everything in this world is just existing for the sake of it. But on the horizon, in the future, Paul says, look, there is evidence that God, in fact, is near and he is doing something and human history is going somewhere. It's not just going to end like that. When you read the news, okay, I don't know if you're like me, um, I read the news before I go to bed, which maybe is not the best. Um, it's way too depressing, but at night I'm already depressed and I don't want to go to sleep, so I'm just you know, doom scrolling on my phone. This is, this is a confession. This is something I need to repent of, and it's not a good habit. Don't do that. But, you know, when you read the news, um, it can be heavy. And we talked about this a, a while back. Like, part of the problem is we get all this bad news, and we take in so much of it because we live in the digital age where we get a ton of news at once, and we can't really do anything about it. And there's sort of like a fatigue that sort of falls over us. And we say things like thoughts and prayers or, oh man, just a, it's another school shooting or, oh man, it's, it's, another, it's another unrest in the country or, or whatever it might be. So many things happening, it almost makes us numb. Sometimes I have to be reminded because I can get pretty down when I read the news all the time have to be reminded that there is a narrative arc to human history. And Paul sees this narrative arc, sees that there is going to be a climatic endpoint in all of these things as evidence that the creator is not done, but he is at work in the here, in the now, and that there's a new creation bursting at the seams and that God is at work all over the place. Not only in your life, but in the universe as a whole. When he says that he began this good work in the lives of the Philippians, okay, that also does mean for you, Wichitans, Wichitans, is that right, Wichitans? We'll go with that. I see evidence, okay, um, or Paul sees the evidence that the past partnership of the gospel and sees evidence in the future that one day that God's going to put all things together. And I believe that God believe or that Paul believes all of that, that the past and the present, that God is at work and that all things are coming to this point. Now, what does this mean for us? One idea in closing, and I think it's an important one. It's the question of why do we pray? Because this is what Paul does, and we'll read the prayer next week, but Paul begins this, this letter by praying for this church. He says, I always pray for all of you. And so my question is, why, why do we pray? Is it to make contact with God? Is it because we need something? Is it because we're desperate? Uh, we're on our deathbed? Why is it that we pray? I think Paul makes the case that we pray because God has started a good work, but that work isn't done yet. I think that there's a gap between who we are and who we're becoming. There's a gap between the way the world is and someday when the world is made good and the full restoration of all things. But in the meantime, God's not just sitting back resting on his laurels. No, God is actively in the process of renewing all things. And we're invited into that. There is a gap in all things for what is and what could be. If you're married, think of your marriage. There's a gap between what your marriage is today, which may be great, it may struggle, but there is a gap between what your marriage is today and what it could be. 
there is a gap um, between what my six-year-old son, Pierce, right now I'm missing his, one of his first games of his doubleheader tonight, um, but I, I was so proud of him last week. He hit the ball from the pitching machine for the first time, real proud dad moment. Um, but I know that there is a gap in who Pierce is now, sweet kid, compassionate kid, but God's still doing more work in his life. And I think that he could do even greater things down the road. And so that's why I'm going to pray for my son, because I believe that there is even more for him in this life. There's a gap between Eastminster, who she is, and who she can be. You know, Eastminster has done some amazing things, and, and by the grace of God, has blessed this church. If you know anything about Eastminster's history, one of the most profound moments in its history was this Project Light, was a moment when there was a capital campaign to raise a bunch of money because the church was bursting at the seams. They needed more space. And when they got all this money, there was a conviction by the Spirit to give that money away for churches that were in need due to an earthquake. And that's, that is radical gospel moving among people. There is the fingerprints of God all over Eastminster's history. And it hasn't always, there's been ups and downs, no question. But God has been in work, and the crazy thing is, I think the best is yet to come. The work isn't finished. What God has started here, he is going to see to completion. And I think the only way any of this happens, any way we close the gaps on the ways in which we want to see what God has started and uh, close that gap a little bit is through beginning with prayer. This is why we started with prayer tonight as sort of a practicing what we preach, that when we begin with prayer, it sort of sets the tone for where and where God's going to lead us. Um, I'm guessing the danger, right, when we talk about prayer is that for many of us, we kind of have the same guilt, like we don't pray enough. And that's not what I'm here to do tonight, is to guilt you into praying more. I mean, I'm, I get paid to pray, and I don't pray enough. Um, I remember my first holiday with my in-laws. It was Thanksgiving. There was, like, all Betsy's cousins and uncles, and, and, they like, and her grandpa, who's this, this awesome, awesome guy, but just kind of has a, a force, a presence about him. He goes, let's have the professional pray. And I was like, oh, no. And I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm like so nervous. It's like my first family get together and my hands are sweating and I'm holding strangers' hands and I have to pray. And I totally messed up the prayer. Like, I'm like, here's the, the pastor supposed to be able to pray. And I think I said something like, bless our service to our bodies and our, our hands to our food. And it just messed the whole, the whole prayer up. Um, look, I, I'm not here to, to guilt us into being better prayers. Or to, be, to, to even say, like, you're not praying. That, that's, not, that's not my purpose and what I'm saying tonight. I guess if we were to ask all of us if we pray enough, the likelihood is, no, we, we could pray more. Um, I think there's reasons why we don't pray, though, and I think this is what I, I want to just sort of zone in on here a little bit. I don't think it's because we're lazy. I don't think it's because we're bad or because um, we don't have enough time. I think many of us, it's because we believe two lies about prayer. And if you're anything like me, you kind of oscillate between these two lies. The first is that we don't actually believe that prayer can change anything. Now, I know that's not right, but to be honest, sometimes I don't actually believe when I'm praying that it will do anything. I'll say, Lord, Lord, do this, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, but whatever's going to happen is going to happen, right? It's your will be done. There's, there's nothing really I can do through my prayers to change anything. And I think actually that, that worldview, 
uh, is deeply embedded in our, our Western European consciousness. It's, it's, it's rooted in the Enlightenment, and there, there are many reasons why in which we sort of think and operate in that way when historically the church didn't operate in that way. I think, but sometimes you can even go back to like Greek philosophy and, and um, you go back to the, the New Testament time, the Greek philosophers outside the church, they'd use a term called fate. Okay, this is what's going to happen in the church. We have a term we use, it's called God's sovereignty. And don't get me wrong here, I believe that God is sovereign in the sense that God rules and reigns over all things, over the cosmos, over our lives. Yes and amen. Okay, don't get me in trouble here. I'm not saying God isn't sovereign. But what I am saying is that the idea that God's in control of what's going to happen and, and that nothing is going to change, like whether we pray or not, or let me phrase it this way, um, that what's going to happen is going to happen regardless of our prayers that's just not a biblical idea. We see multiple examples in the Old Testament of where the prayers of God's faithful people moved God to take action. There's this, there's a, there's this a beautiful phrase where it says that God relented because of the prayers of his people. There are moments when, when people prayed with ultimate faith and it, it, it actually changed the ways in which God was moving in those spaces. Absolutely, God is sovereign over all things, but your prayers do matter. They're not just lip service. And God will answer your prayers. Sometimes that answer is no, but sometimes God does miracles. I believe, and I know that Paul believes, by evidence of reading the rest of this letter, that Jesus rules and reigns, that Jesus is Lord of the universe, and that history is going somewhere. And I know that Paul was a Jewish rabbi, which meant he prayed three times in the morning, three times in the afternoon, and three times in the evening. And he actually believes that when he stops and prays that the one who created the Southern Crab Nebula and, and the Stellar Sword and, and the one who created the universe and the cosmos hears every single word that comes out of Paul's lips when he prays, whether it's for the Philippians or whoever it might be. And when that prayer in the spirit of God with Paul lines up with God's cosmic plan for the universe, I believe that God steps in and responds and makes things happen. Now, sometimes I know that's right, but in my heart, I struggle to believe that prayer can actually change things. The other lie I vacillate to is that I believe that I can change things, which is true to an extent, um, there are times where I do have some agency to, to make change. Um, I'm an image bearer of God. I'm, I'm, I'm partnering with God, and because of that, God can use me for that for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I sometimes think like, oh, I can, I can change um, my relationships, or I could change my wife, which I learned very quickly in marriage is not uh, always the case, right? Before we got married, um, We've been married for nine years, eight years. Oh, I should get that right. I think it's nine years now. Um, I always thought like, I think my wife probably thought this more than I did, but I always thought like, oh, there are these things that I could change about her over time. It'll be fine. We'll get married. You learn very quickly that some things just won't change. You married that person and you kind of have to live with it. Um, that's part of what it means to, to compromise in marriage and all that. And I think the same way about my kids. Like, I can only do so much to protect them. I can, I can, you know, we have our kids in public schools, which sometimes we're, we're 
bit concerned about certain things with that, things that they're, they're learning at school. Um, we think about our parenting techniques. Are they r- the right kind of techniques? Are we teaching them to do things correctly? Um, there's only so much that we can do and control as parents. And so oftentimes, I think my prayers become ones out of desperation and when I'm back against the wall as opposed to starting with prayer. Last night, I faced a crisis, and I'll share this briefly as I, as I close. Um, I was in my living room sitting on a couch with my daughter. We were watching Coco Melon on the screen. Um, and as we're watching this, I'm kind of zoning out. It like, got me sucked in. I'm just like, uh, zombie from the show. And my son, Henry, climbs over me on the couch, and there was a uh, bouncy exercise ball. And he stepped on that, and it shot out from under him, and he fell and hit his face on the coffee table. And in this moment, I went into crisis mode because my son's bleeding profusely. I immediately realized, like, this isn't something I can stitch up. Like, he needs to go to the hospital. And so I'm just like, okay. One part of my brain is fully, like, operation mode. I immediately get on the phone with Betsy. She's working at the hospital at the time. I said, hey, by the way, we're coming to Wesley right now. Don't freak out, but Henry's bleeding. We need to get him there as soon as possible. Get on the phone with my, my brother, Mike. I'm like, Mike, will you come over? Pierce is watching Emma. I need you to come watch my kids. And I, because I immediately got Henry in the car and left and told Pierce he was in charge. So I'm really crossing my fingers there. But the other part of my brain was literally on the spot, like, like praying. I'm like, God, please keep Henry safe. Like, like he's bleeding. Like, don't make sure he doesn't pass out. Like, please protect him in this. Please uh, help us get to the hospital. I'm like, I'm, all these things are just shooting off in my brain. And my back against the wall immediately turned to prayer. Now, by the way, Henry's safe. I should have started with that. He's okay. Um, we got him help. We got him stitched up. Um, he's got some pretty gnarly teeth right now. Luckily, they're baby teeth, so it's, you know, they're going to lose them anyway. Um, but uh, I believe this, and here's what I, what I believe. I believe that God hears our prayers in crisis. I also think that he'd like to hear from us a lot more. Um, what if, what if it wasn't just the times when our backs were against the wall or when we were instructed to pray, whether that's mealtime or bedtime, but what if there was a practice of prayer where we started things with prayer as opposed to them being a reaction? Whether, whether it's date night with your spouse or with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and, and, and maybe it's one of those things you have to have a hard conversation with them, and instead of just going right into the conversation, you maybe say, hey, let, let's, can we start with prayer? Like, take, a, take five minutes to pray and, and, and pray blessing over each other. Or maybe it's um, that conversation, uh, you're, th- you're thinking about like going into work and there's a stressful, this stressful work environment for whatever reason. And instead of just going into work and trying to grind it out, you get two or three uh, people who are your coworkers or maybe friends to get together before work, go to a coffee shop and pray for 20 minutes together. Maybe you work in a secular work environment and you tend to just get bogged down by just the, 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 the grind of that. Maybe by starting your day with others in community praying, I bet, I would wager that that would change the outcome of your day. What if we started with prayer? In your life, I'll ask you, what, where in your life would you say there's a gap? a gap between who you are and who you want to be, or where you are now or where you want to go, whether it's in your marriage, your life, your career, your relationships, 
your businesses, your dreams, your desires, whatever it might be, where is there a gap? My encouragement to you this week is to pray, to start with prayer, praying that God would help you fill that gap. Because I believe that at the center of the creator of the universe hears those prayers and he is active today. He's not distant, but he's near. He's at work. And when we join God in prayer, we invite him into our life. God is already at work and he will come and do incredible things. I truly believe that. So think about your life. Think about where there may be a gap. Are you willing to commit to not just white knuckling it through life and trying your hardest to be better? Because look, salvation is a gift. There is no question. It is, it, is, it is God's love rooted in Christ's obedience for you, not your obedience towards him, okay? It is a gift. Salvation is a gift. But the journey of a Jesus follower is that in that journey, in our salvation, that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are growing in our sanctification, which is just a churchy word by saying we are working to become more like Jesus, that we are growing, trying to be better. But it's not a passive thing, right? It's the Holy Spirit at work, but we are also participating in that. The best way to start is with prayer. So that's my encouragement to you tonight. Start with prayer, that God would finish the work that he's already begun and bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, we take a minute to thank you for all the ways that your fingerprints have been all over this church, over this service, over the relationships in this room, and the tears that have been shed in this room, and the laughter and the joy Lord, we take a moment to thank you for all of it, even in the difficult times and the ups and the downs and the, and the times when um, we felt like our prayers didn't mean anything and the times we doubted, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. And Lord, that you would renew in us a new faith, that when we would pray, we would pray with expectation of what you're going to do, that the best days are ahead and not behind us. Lord, that your fingerprints are on our past, but they're also bringing us to the glorious future. So Lord, help us in that. We give our lives to you. It's in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.